Welcome to the podcast of Revival Life Church, a spirit-filled multicultural church in Boca Raton, Florida. If you would like more information about Revival Life Church or Pastor Carl Thomas, you can find us on the web at revivallife.church. Are you feeling good? Are you glad you came today already? Yeah, it's a good day. It's a good, good day. Well, I am super honored to have you here, first of all, uh, but also to have uh, Bishop Mark Sharona with us. It's a, it's a, it's a big, big deal. Just, I just want to introduce him very quickly. Um, uh, I, I always mess these up. I'm just going to be honest with you. I get all fanboyish when my friends come and when the pastors come. I just talk a little bit and I sit down and I'm like, oh, I should have said what he does for a living. And so... Um, I actually, I actually, you know, tried to get a little smart this time and, uh, and, and write it down because, you know, I'm learning. You know, we like to say around here, when we, when we, when we go live with this church, it's going to be amazing. But while we're in this uh, pre-launch phase um, of this decade, we're, we're still working out the kinks. Uh, Bishop Mark has uh, several advanced degrees in psychology and theology, um, including a doctorate of ministry. Um, he's almost done with his Ph.D., uh, but the coronavirus held him up a little bit. I'm really looking forward to uh, finishing that up. Uh, and reading it. Um, he pastors a church in Orlando called Church on the Living Edge. Uh, he's a bishop in the International Communion of Charismatic Churches. And um, in 2011, uh, I was at a conference at his church. Uh, Randy Clark was there. You don't, I don't even know if you, you know this. Um, I was at a conference there, and uh, my knees got healed in that conference at your church, which is a big deal. Um, I, I used to have to preach and then go home and ice my knees. I had really, I just really messed them up. Obviously, you could tell I was an elite athlete, you know, for a better part of my life. I'm not sure why you're laughing. And, um, and I really, I really, I messed up my, not elite, but I was an athlete. And I messed up my knees and they got miraculously healed at a conference and they've been healed ever since. Say amen. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's not psychological, it's real. And uh, I, I found the email, Bishop. I emailed you and I said, How do we stay connected? You said, uh, This is how. I, I didn't know what that meant. It took me about eight years to figure that out. Um, and uh, he's written many, many, many books. Um, and uh, I, for those who don't know what our journey as a church has been and what my personal journey uh, has been, um, we've always been a spirit-filled church. Amen? We've always been spirit-filled. We always believed in all the gifts of the Spirit. Uh, been very heavy in prophecy, healing, uh, miracle, just, just words of knowledge, words of wisdom, the big deal. And then um, it seemed like uh, the church fell off a cliff a couple years ago, and, um, and just uh, craziness started to rain. And, um, and as craziness reigned, the, uh, some of the voices that I had really looked up to as spiritual fathers uh, just started ministering in a way that was bewildering to me. Um, I had a hard time reconciling these things, and it really caused some anxiety, uh, some disconnection on the inside of me. And uh, as we journeyed through this, as a house, I was in the middle of getting my first master's degree, um, and uh, I got reconnected with Bishop Mark. And um, as I finished my master's and uh, began uh, my second, um, I wound up at another conference at his church, uh, which is the Issachar Conference. Now, uh, Bishop Mark has been very, very strong and vocal about the need for justice uh, in the kingdom. Amen. And uh, we as kingdom-minded people should seek justice in the earth. And uh, yet he was able to navigate this crazy season of both um, believing in justice and biblical integrity when it comes to the prophetic word. Um, and amen. 
And, uh, and, and I'm going to just say this, and uh, hopefully this doesn't offend, I don't, you know, hopefully it doesn't offend anybody, but uh, he's the only prophetic voice I know that I didn't, not, that's not true. He's the only widely listened to prophetic voice uh, that I know that didn't have to repent uh, after the election. And uh, I was pretty happy about that. Um, um, I probably should have worded that more gracefully. Um, but uh, I, I, we so deeply value the voice of God. We deeply value the scriptures here. And uh, as I grew more and more in love with the scriptures, um, I, I appreciated the ministry of, of Bishop Mark even more. And um, I, I connected with him uh, several years ago. Uh, I've joined his, um, his order of St. Maximus, and you may not know what that means, and that's okay. Just, if that confuses you, just let it, just, just put it on the shelf for a little bit. And, um, and uh, he, has, he has agreed to, to, to pastor me and to uh, become the bishop over my ministry. And so uh, he's here today, and we're going to kind of formalize that from what I, you know, we're going to play it loose, I think. But, um, but if you would stand with me, and you would just welcome Bishop Mark Sharona. And uh, Bishop, the house is yours. Um, I, I didn't turn you on, so we're going to act, we're going to wait. So I just keep clapping, keep clapping, everybody. Yeah, here we go. Yeah, I wish welcome up if you would, Bishop Mark Sharona. Thank you. You can be seated. It's a delight to be here. It's a delight to be with Pastors Carl and Tracy and with the family and with you both here and online. Tonight, we're not making something happen. We're acknowledging that something has been going on for quite a long time here at Revival Life. And I'm simply coming uh, at the behest of your pastors and going to lay hands on them to formally say that we're connected. And um, I want to share a bit from a passage of Scripture that we're all familiar with and, Lord willing, take us on a journey of greater clarity and understanding in terms of perhaps where we are and where the Lord is inviting us to go as the body of Christ. There's a lot going on in the day in which we live. And we could say that um, there was a day in Israel when it says there was a famine for the hearing of the word of the Lord. Now, I... I would contend there still is a famine, but we don't know there's a famine because there's so many so-called words from the Lord that there's like this overabundant banquet of pick and choose which word you want. It doesn't matter. It's all God. And I'm not sure about that because I don't think Jesus contradicts himself. So... I do think we are in a place where, particularly within the church in America, God is sifting and sorting things out. And in some ways, and this is a little bit sobering, I would argue that the American popular church has been given over to its lusts and appetites. And it is already under judgment. I'm not waiting for judgment to happen. God doesn't punish people. The idea that God punishes is a very poor way of looking at the nature of God's judgment. God simply gives us what we want. 
And um, the dangerous thing is that we don't realize that when God gives us what we want, we don't get much. Um, there's a moment in the journey of the sons of Israel where they complain about manna and quail. Now, it's miracle provision. They get it morning and evening every single day except for the Sabbath. And they start complaining about the miracle and that they're not getting enough. And so God says, I'll give you enough till it comes out your nose. But I'm going to send you leanness of soul. And I think what we're seeing right now is the spirit of entitlement that masquerades as the anointing but has nothing to do with what God actually anoints. And so God is giving people what they want. And what we want to make sure of is that we want what He wants. So that we can say, with Jesus, not my will, but thine be done. Look with me in Acts chapter 2 at um, Luke's appraisal of what happens because of Pentecost. We're told in verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all the believers were together and had all things in common. And they would sell their property and possessions and share them with all, to the extent that anyone had need. Day by I've got a big mouth, so I don't need a big mic. Are you anointed? I had a driver back in Raleigh, North Carolina, one of my dearest friends, that I wanted to know he was an anointed driver. Because um, I'm from New York, and you got to be anointed if you're going to travel with me. I won't tell you what that requires, but I just want to make sure you're anointed. And, um, all the believers were together and had all things in common, and they would sell their property and possessions and share them with all to the extent that anyone had need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. When we think about the context of this, this is Luke giving us a commentary on what happens as a result of the experience of the empowering presence of the Spirit at Pentecost. They are in a place where they are finding themselves all of a sudden the recipients of a gift. 
One of the things that I think is really seriously lacking in many churches in our tribe is that we treat the Holy Spirit like a tool instead of a gift. We use God for our own ends. And as a result of that, there's a kind of spirit of entitlement that has pervaded the popular church where we think that God gets behind our technique. We're Americans and we love techniques and formulas. And we use those because we actually think everything is robotic and mechanical. But we're not robots. We're not mechanical. And God doesn't do things in three easy steps. And we're always trying to fix our life. But you're not a computer. You're not a machine. You're a human being. Human beings don't need to be fixed. Human beings are on a journey to becoming fully human. And that requires not being fixed. That that requires being healed and then becoming whole. And that's an entire lifelong journey because as much as we may claim we're human beings, we are still a bit less than human because we have fallen short of the glory of God. The only truly human being is Jesus. And we're on our way to becoming human, which is about partaking of the divine nature. And that won't happen for you and I until we receive our glorified bodies. So you are on the way to becoming human. We say both the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed in our church, and when we say the Nicene Creed, we say the version where it speaks of Christ in the second article as becoming truly human. And we need to learn what it means to be truly human. And when God gives the gift of His Spirit, the gift of His Spirit is given to us that we might become truly human. And the baptism of fire is a baptism of the fiery, passionate, intentional love of the triune God who sanctifies us by that all-consuming love. The fire of God is not Him angry. The fire of God is Him loving. And when we come to terms with the fact that God is lover, then we look at judgment a little bit differently. I'm not a Calvinist, and with all due respect to those that are, I'm not a Calvinist for many reasons, most of which is that I don't believe God only died for a certain company of people and the rest were decreed that they were condemned. I believe Christ died for all. And and neither do I believe that God is a judge first and that love is arbitrary. Within the context of Calvinism, his son-in-law, Theodore Beza, argued, based on Calvin, that love was arbitrary, that judgment was primary. Well, that contradicts what John the Beloved says in the epistle to John where he says that God is love. God doesn't have love. God is love. And that's a statement of something that's tied to the nature of the relations between the Father and the Son who, by the Spirit of love, who is the bond of love between them, 
continue to dance endlessly in that love and invite us into that dance of love. And so if God is lover, then judgment is restorative, not punitive. And we won't see true justice fully on this side of glory. We will only see it in the consummation of the ages. We know in part. We prophesy in part. We understand ever so slightly. And it's really important that we not act like we know everything. That we carry ourselves with a certain kind of humility. Your reading of the Scripture isn't inspired. The Scripture is inspired, but your interpretation of it isn't always inspired. You may think you know what a text says, and you may get up and expound on that text, but you may not be as faithful as you think you are. There are things I preached 20 years ago that I wish I never said. There are things I preached 40 years ago that I know I never would ever say again. But we act as Americans like we know more than we do, and we walk as if we're, we have our act together when we need to walk as if we need to have our act put together by the one who's taking us on a journey. So, when we think about Pentecost, we're told that they were all together in one accord, and suddenly there came from heaven the sound of a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Now, I know we claim that's the upper room, but I'm going to tell you that may not be the case, that more than likely this is the temple. And there's many reasons for saying that, because if you've ever been to Israel and been to the upper room, you can't put 120 people in that room. It's way too, way too small. Um, where the Last Supper was held was a beautiful room, but it was far smaller than this room that we're in right now. 120 people would not fit in it. Secondly, when the Spirit is poured out and they're accused of being drunk with wine, it's because on the day of Pentecost, there's a libation offering made of wine that's poured out, and the mockers were accusing them of dipping into the sacramental wine. And so there's a lot going on here that prevents us from saying with total conviction, this is the upper room. We, we, tradition likes to, to say things that doesn't necessarily gel with what may be there if we pay attention to the little nuances in the text that might challenge our presupposition. And a lot of times, beloved, we don't slow down to the speed of observation and we miss a lot of stuff and therefore we don't really see what's right in front of our eyes. And so when we look at this moment, we're told that they were all together in one accord. Now, Luke uses the term one accord quite a bit in Luke-Acts. It's a word that is known in the Greek, and the word is homothumadon. It literally means rushing along in unison. Everybody say that. Say it again. 
So now I want you to listen to the Greek if I insert it into the text. And they were all together rushing along in unison. And suddenly there came from heaven the sound of a mighty rushing wind. Which rushing came first? The one from heaven or the one from earth? So there's a certain correspondence that God is looking for from His people. And that is, as in heaven, so on earth. That somehow, in that ten-day period when Jesus gave instruction that they were to wait in Jerusalem until they were clothed with power from on high, something was going on in that group that made them come to a place where they were all passionate and intentional in their movement toward a future that was calling them in a way they could not fully grasp. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, both at the same time. Jesus is calling us from the future to the future. Jesus is future present. We are present and usually think that the past determines the present. When in actual fact, from God's perspective, the future determines the present. So when your pastor talked about when your pastor talked about some of the pain you went through in the last few years, that's not what's determining where you are right now. Where you are right now is because of your future, not because of your past. So that whatever happened in your past was based on what the future was calling you to. You, you didn't reap what you thought you were sowing. You discovered that a God who calls you from the future to the future was exposing what won't fit in the future so it would get out of the way so you could get to the future you're going to. See, and the moment you make that subtle shift, you are repenting. You know, it's one thing to say repentance means feel rotten about who you are and then God will make you feel good about who you are, but that's not what repentance is. Repentance is a Greek term that dates back to long before Jesus to the Greek philosophers and it was a form of education. Metanoeo is an educational term that comes from a Greek educational system called paideia. And so paideia was from the time you're an infant until the time you're an adult, you go through stages of metanoeo. How many of you may not remember, but you were in diapers once? And you graduated from diapers to underwear. That's metanoeo. That's repentance. That means you discovered there's something you do so you can put underwear on and not have mama worry about whether or not you're going to mess them up. That's a form of repentance. That's metanoeo. Well, at every stage of your journey, if you go from, if in America you go from grammar school to middle school, that's repentance. If you go from middle school to high school, that's repentance. If you go from high school to college, that's repentance. If you go from college to graduate school, you need a psychiatrist. 
And if you go more than once, you really need a psychiatrist. You're a glutton for punishment. But repentance is a form of education. And it's not something that happens in a moment. So when Peter stands up and says, repent and receive, he's not saying you can do this in a minute. He's saying, I want you to embrace a fundamental shift that will characterize the rest of your journey in life. Because it's going to become a lifestyle where you fundamentally realize that changing your mind takes a little more than a minute. Which is why you can't get saved at an altar by praying a prayer. That may be a moment in your journey where you're starting to make a shift. But how many of you know that there are things in your life that you know need to change and still haven't changed yet? You're all going to hell. (laughs) If we believe American theology, you're already in deep trouble. So why are we even here tonight? Let's just give up now. But the truth is, it takes a long time for us to change. Now, in Italian, we have a word for that. Cocochados means we're thick-headed. Cocavados, if you're speaking a Neapolitan dialect, you're thick-headed, but you're saying it in a different way. Italians don't get along with one another, by the way. See, like, I married a Norwegian girl because none of the Italian girls were good enough for my father. Because you bring home an Italian girl and your father says to you, what part of Italy does your family come from? And she tells him, says, we don't get along. Get out of here. <laughs> you, ever, you ever see the Pope at the Vatican on Christmas or on Easter? You ever, you ever see, you know what the Pope, he stands at the, at, the, at the balcony does this? You ever see that? My grandmother used to do this. You know, you know what this means? What do you want from me? What do you want from me? What do you, and then he goes like this. You know what that means? All oh, you Italians, get off the lawn. <laughs> Repentance takes time. So when Peter stands up and he says, this Jesus, this particular Jesus, because Jesus was a very common name, but the moment... Jesus of Nazareth took that name. He made it uncommon. So much so that when I grew up as a kid in New York and the Mets had a guy that was Puerto Rican playing for them, they would never say, Jesus caught the third baseman's ball in the right field. They wouldn't say that because they didn't want you to confuse Jesus with Jesus. Philippe Alou, Jesus Alou, and Matty Alou were the three Alou brothers when I grew up. They were, they were some of our baseball heroes. But imagine, Jesus in the outfield, just fielded a catch. Just, <laughs> Jesus just got up and batted a, batted a, batted a, batted a home run right out of the right field. So, no, I just... So, <laughs> this Jesus whom you crucified... God has made him both Lord and Christ. Repent, therefore, and receive. So that the fundamental shift is a turning not just from, but a turning toward. So it's not just turning 
from the idea that my past determines my present. It's a turning toward a Jesus who is calling me from the future to the future. And most of us honestly live with the notion that my past determines my present. So our orientation is past-present or present-past. And the first thing that has to happen if we are going to be disciples who are being summoned continually by a Jesus who says, follow me, is to learn to shift and to repent in relationship to, I am being called from the future to the future. He is standing in the future saying, follow me. Stop turning and looking at what's wrong with you based on where you've been and start embracing what I'm calling you to so you can become everything I said. And our problem is, is that we end up claiming we're following Jesus, but we keep looking back at all the stuff we went through. And we keep wondering why we can't change. Turn your back on it. That's what you want to turn from. And realize the kingdom is this way. You can't plow if you keep looking back. You can't plow. And, and, if the, and, if the, and if the field of your heart is going to receive seed, but you'll keep looking back, you're going to keep repeating the known past instead of creating the unknown future. And so the gift of the Spirit is designed to, number one, let you know if God's giving you His Spirit, it's because you're forgiving. Now, it doesn't mean you're not going to need to be forgiven again, because we're a hot mess. Look at somebody and say, you really are a hot mess. I live with you. <laughs> and those of you who are single, you're a hot mess because nobody wants to live with you. And so, there's a sense in which we need to understand that the Spirit who was given to us as gifts is given to bring us into an exquisite and elegant future that is rooted on the fact that we have been forgiven so that we can become fully human. And what's happening in the book of Acts, Luke is not just writing history. Luke, through history, is telling us a theology about how we become the community of God. And it begins not by this idea that we need a technique to fix our church. Nothing needs to be fixed at Revival Life. When I lay hands tonight on your pastors, I want everyone in this house to realize we're doing this together, and I want you all to come to accept we're not trying to fix our past. We are committing to participating in the co-creation of our future. Say there's nothing to fix. 
not even me. Stop trying to fix your life. How about we embrace there are areas I need to be healed. There are areas I need to be made whole. But I'm a human being. I'm not a car. I'm not a mechanical extractor. I'm not a computer. God doesn't give me downloads. That's not how God talks. God speaks to me in my humanness. And when God speaks to me in my humanness, it's not a download as if I lose my mind and God just downloads something. You're not a computer. Stop using unfaithful language to talk about a real person named Jesus and a real person named the Holy Spirit and a real person named the Father who are the threeness and the oneness who made you a real person, though you are much less a person than the super-personal God, but the persons of the Godhead made you a person so you could become whole. And you can't become whole without the threeness of the Father and the Son and the Spirit bringing you to a place where you realize that Jesus, when He says, follow me, is saying that in every season of your life. And He's always calling you from the future. I know I sound like a broken record, but it's all I want you to remember. He's calling you from the future to the future. Which is why when Jesus talks to you, He calls those things that are not as though they are. So that the gift of the Holy Spirit is the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. Galatians makes it clear. Paul makes it clear. Luke is letting us know in the sermon of Peter, the receiving of the Spirit is the promise made to Abraham. God was not giving Abraham a promise of a piece of real estate. That was only temporary. The real promise was God was going to give Himself to Abraham. The Spirit is God. Jesus is God. The Father is God. You don't use God as a tool. You enter into the dance that is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And He says, dance with me. I want to be your partner. Dance with me. He's saying, dance with me. He's the Lord of the dance. And the word there for the dance is from the ancient Greek perichoresis. Those are the relations between the three persons of the Trinity. This perichoretic, if you've never been to a Greek wedding, they do a dance with a handkerchief where it starts with one person holding a handkerchief and then another person joins them and they do everything in sync and then another person joins them and it gets faster and faster until it's a circle that doesn't end and they're all moving in total synchronization. And that's, that's an ancient dance that goes back thousands of years. So when the early church fathers tried to describe the relations between the Trinity and their invitation of us to become community, they called it perichoresis. It's the divine dance. It's the divine dance. 
don't even want to go to the door. So that's what God's inviting you into. That's what revival life is all about. This is not about abandoning any sense of the fullness of the excitement, of the passion, of the fire that is the love of God. This is about this isn't about having a service where the entire service is orchestrated and geared towards a moment where somebody prays a prayer and you call that salvation. That's not what salvation is. That's what Billy Sunday called it, but Billy Sunday wasn't a theologian. He was a baseball player. And by the way, his methods didn't last. Most of the people that come down and make those decisions never consistently live it out. That's not what conversion is. Conversion is way more profound and way deeper than that. And I would venture to say if you keep coming back, chances are you keep turning toward Him from where you've been because you're being beckoned by a follow me where Jesus is saying, like I did with Abram and Sarai, Abram and Sarai, I'm taking you on a journey to becoming human. Well, how are you doing that, Jesus? I'm taking you from barrenness to birth. Because when you read the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, this one begat that one, begat this one, begat that one, begat this one, begat that one, all the way for 11 chapters, these generations after generations, until you get to Abram and Sarah. And it says they had no. First negation in all of Scripture, Sarah had no children. Every one of us starts with a negation when it comes to God. There are areas that God wants to bring you to because you can't get there on your own. Which is why He calls those things that are not as though they are. And the only way to get to the future from the present is to believe that your negation doesn't disqualify you. Which is why your past doesn't determine your present nor does it determine your future. So when David is anointed to be king, that's when the lions and the bears start going after him. He's not attacked as a shepherd simply because he's out in the wilderness. When the oil is on him, all of a sudden lions and bears show up. They're previews of coming attractions called Goliath and his four brothers. So even though he's anointed and his daddy sends him back into obscurity, the future is already on him because the oil's on him. The Spirit's already symbolically, sacramentally been placed on his head. He's been anointed with a horn of oil. So now the future is what's pulling him. And now he is smelled as a threat to the kingdom of darkness. So lions and bears are coming from his future, not from his past. It's not because his daddy made him a shepherd. It's because Jesus made him a king. And now, as a king, he's battling things that only kings battle. So whatever you went through two years ago with people that thought they knew more because they lacked intellectual humility and intellectual honesty, and they thought their interpretation of Scripture was inspired, they just revealed they were idiots. Fools. 
that have been given over to their own lusts. They won't last. Some of them prayerfully will repent. The rest of them will not be walking with Jesus even in the next three years. Whatever they think, whatever Jesus they think they're following, it's not the Jesus of Scripture. It's one they've made up in their own minds because it appeals to them being God because they've made God in their own image, not, their, not, not being made into His. They're not following Jesus into the future. They're demanding Jesus submit to their idea of their interpretation of Scripture. Nothing faithful about that at all. Nothing intellectually honest. Nothing intellectually humble. Nothing intellectually uh, that's astute. It is actually pride and arrogance, and it's revealed in the way they carry themselves. They were not of you, so they had to leave. Because they don't belong in your future. Now, you're looking at somebody that's pioneered three times from the ground floor up. I've been in a group this size three times. I know what it's like to think we can't get Bishop, we can't get to where you are from here. You can only get there from here. This will never define the one who's saying, follow me and I'll make you. This is simply where you discover how to rush along in unison. This is the place where God in a womb of sorts is forming and shaping you as a covenant community. And how's He doing that? He is inviting you to be steadfast in your commitment to the Apostles' doctrine and into fellowship and into the breaking of bread and into prayer. Well, what is that all about? Well, first of all, the Apostles' doctrine isn't the latest thing that Kenneth Copeland is preaching. With all due respect to Kenneth Copeland. We have this idea in the popular church that whoever is on TV, that's the Apostles' Doctrine. Bulldinky. I'd say, if it was my church, I'd say worse, but I want you to at least think I'm saved. Donkey dust. What is the Apostles' Doctrine? Do you realize that in that day when they baptized, the apostles already had a working understanding of the threeness and the oneness that you confessed in the apostles' creed. Because if you got baptized on the day of Pentecost, the first question they would ask you is, who do you believe God the Father is? And you would say, I believe God the Father is God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. And who is God the Son? His only Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who was conceived of the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. And who is the Holy Spirit? He is the one who is the Lord and the administrator of the church, the Lord and the giver of life. And He is the one who is overseeing the forgiveness of our sins. And He is the one who is responsible for the communion of the saints, both dead and alive. They would have had a full understanding of what a, a baptismal confession was. And the Apostles' Doctrine wasn't, how do you make a million dollars overnight? That's an American Apostles' Doctrine, but it's actually almost blasphemous. I'm not saying God doesn't want to bless you, but the moment you go there, you're already not preaching faithfully. These were the creedal confessions. So, 
instead of saying, I'm not getting fed, you need to say, Bishop, Pastor, Pastors, teach us the doctrine of God. Who is the Father? Who is the Son? Who is the Spirit? How are we to understand the threeness? Sunday is Trinity Sunday. Last Sunday was Pentecost Sunday. You are now moving into the ordinary season of the church calendar where it's all Holy Ghost from here to Advent again. So make it about the Holy Ghost for the next number of months. Make it about Abraham and his journey from barrenness to birth. Make it about the negation that's been over your life by God's design to bring you to a pregnancy and a multiplication that's going to cause you to say the place where we're living is not big enough to hold the children we're bearing. Where did all these kids come from? They came from a gift. And the gift is God Himself. What if in this Pentecost season, God is saying, I'm giving you my spirit afresh. Receive Him as gift. And listen again to the Jesus who was saying, follow me and I will make you. The Apostles' Doctrine. About the revelation of God. It's also about fellowship, koinonia, participation in the life of God. How do we dance with Him? What does it mean to wake up every day as part of a divine dinner? What does Jesus mean when He says that when the Spirit comes, He will disclose to you what is to come? Well, does that mean He's going to give us previews of coming attractions? Absolutely, which is why your future determines your present natural path. So when you lift your hands in worship as a congregation, and God starts showing you visions of what can be, oh my, we can't make that happen. No, but just believe God and watch what God does. And stay faithful to the apostles' doctrine. The faith once for all delivered to the saints. I've been telling our house something for the last five years. Out with the old. You're, are you ready to tell them? Out with the old and in with the older. The church of the future is going to go back to the pre-modern view of truth. We're going back instead of because there's this false notion that the more recent something is, the more relevant it is. Recency is not relevancy. The more ancient the wisdom is, the more relevant it is. The more we go back and look at what the ancient fathers taught, they were way smarter than the American church. And what you're seeing right now are the fruits of our folly, because we want to define what community is based on systems management, individual percentage units, and having the, the, the lights down low and the smoke just right at the worship time 
none of which has anything to do with worshiping Jesus. And we call it the anointing, but it's cultural ecstasy. And it's all narcissistic and self-centered and not focused on Jesus. And Jesus is letting the bottom fall out of all of it. And he's exposing all the corruption that's been going on in the church. And it's going to get worse before it gets better. So buckle your seatbelts. The next 10 years is going to be a rough ride. But if you're in the right community, God's going to take the negation off and bring you from barrenness to birth. Because He's calling you from the future to the future. The Apostles' Doctrine, fellowship, the breaking of bread, Eucharistic presence. The reality that the Eucharist is celebrated every time they gather has been lost to the popular church. The Eucharist is the center of worship. There is a grace that comes to us at the table that can come no other way. This is my body. This is my real presence. The glory of the one who had this habit after the resurrection of showing up at mealtime at the time of the breaking of the bread so that every time they would break bread they would say Maranatha even so come Lord Jesus. It wasn't a prayer for the second coming. It was a prayer for the special presence of the special person to manifest himself at the table. That's where prophecy took place. That's where healing took place. That's where deliverance took place. That's where miracles took place. We talk about revival like we know what revival is, and then we claim John Wesley as our heir as Pentecostals. But do you realize that John Wesley's view of revival was different than Billy Sunday's? John Wesley failed when he came to America. It didn't work here. Because he wasn't dealing with a Christian nation. When John Wesley preached to the coal miners, they were Anglicans that had been baptized as children. His altar call was come to the table and make right your, the oath your parents made about your baptismal being set apart to becoming human in Jesus and come and partake of the body and the blood. It wasn't a first time come to Jesus, which is why it didn't work here. Because John Wesley didn't know how to deal with Native Americans. Had he known how to deal with Native Americans, he might have talked about the Great Spirit and talked the language of their own tradition instead of listening to the way the American church called them savages, as if they were less human than others. American Christianity is a rebel Christianity that has no resemblance whatsoever to the ancient faith. American Christianity was birthed by white Europeans that separated from the Anglican Church and the Roman Catholic Church, but took with them the belief the color of their skin made them more privileged than anyone else that was living in a different part of the world. Which is why they were able to justify slavery from Scripture and calling people savages that were less than their pigmentation. 
I'm not making this up. I'm not making this up. This is real. This is our history. And so the breaking of bread implies that we are all the body of Christ. Do you realize that Joseph's coat of many colors is you and I? At the consummation of the ages, Jesus is the head, we are the body. What we're going to see at the consummation is Jesus is putting us on as his multicolored dream coat. One person in Jesus. We won't tell, we're one big mosaic of Jesus. That's the technicolor dream coat. The head and the body seen in the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ who fills all in all. This is my And prayer. Prayer. Because prayer wasn't simply you make up whatever you want to make up and then the rest is just thrown away. It's okay for Pentecostals to do spontaneous prayer. But it's also important to go back in Scripture and realize that the prayer book of Jesus has been the prayer book of the church and was the prayer book of Israel. And the moment we throw that prayer book out, we lose the language of prayer. Whether you feel like it or not, you need to be able to say on a daily basis, enlarge me in my distress. Even if you're not in distress, you need to pray Psalm 4 as if you are. Because Christ was praying. Because all the Psalms speak of Jesus. The prayer book needs to be not just you making up spontaneous prayers, but you standing before God as a congregation and as individuals. You pick whatever ones you want, but start making it a habit. I've done this since I was in Bible school, way back when God was a teenager. Remember your congregation which you purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the table, the tribe of your inheritance. And this Mount Zion where you have dwelt, step toward the irreparable ruin. That's a word for right now, tonight. Step toward the irreparable ruins. Remember your congregation. The enemy has damaged everything in the sanctuary. Your adversaries have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They have set up their own sign as signs. It seems like one bringing up his axe into a forest of trees. And now they break down all its carved work with axes and hammers. They have burned your sanctuary to the ground. They have defied the file of the dwelling place of your name. They have said in their heart, let's completely subdue them. That's what your enemies did to you. They wanted to see you destroyed. But guess what? You're still here. When you read, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Stop reading it as you. Start reading it as Jesus saying that his Father is his shepherd, he shall not want. Because none of us, and when you read, who will ascend the hill of the Lord? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. That disqualifies you right away. (laughs) Only one person has ever ascended the hill of the Lord. It's Jesus. And you are praying that with Jesus because you can't, Ascend the hill of the Lord without Him, which is why He gives you the gift of the Spirit. So prayer is more than your spontaneous talking in tongues. Prayer is when you pray 
the prayers of Scripture. Prayer is when you don't think it's religious to say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever unto the ages of ages. Amen. Prayer is Lord Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me, a sinner. Prayer is who existed, though, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. And being found in, in the form of a servant, he obedient to death, he submitted himself and became obedient even to the point of death. Therefore, God, our God, has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess to the glory of the Father that he is. Lord. So listen carefully to what happens as I close now. Those four things create realities that can only happen no other way. All came on everyone. If you will practice those four things as a congregation, first thing that you're going to have is reverential awe. You're going to walk into this place and it's going to be a habitation of God in the Spirit. This place, whatever you have rented from or who you've rented from, there have been promises uttered in this place that if the walls could talk, they would remind everyone in this room and everyone at home right now of promises that have been made to this people because this was empty space until you showed up. But because covenant promises have been made, it is now sacred place. It isn't just empty space. It is sacred place. And there are angelic guardians that surround this sacred place. And this is a place where no matter who walks in that door, if they walk into a place where the apostles' doctrine is steadfastly followed, where the breaking of bread is continually practiced, where koinonia is lived, and where prayer is breathed, they're going to feel awe when they come in here because of the manifest presence of God. Not only that, miracles, signs, and wonders are going to be done at the hands of your leadership. And everyone is going to have everything in common. That doesn't mean you can rip one another off. It doesn't, it's not about a spirit of entitlement because you got some, I need some. No, if there's a genuine need that the house will say, we have what it takes to meet that need. They would sell their possessions and good and distribute. That takes Jesus to do that. Take Jesus to say, if I've got it and you need it, I'll sell it so you can get what you need. You can't demand that, but grace will do that by the Spirit and a family of God that flows together. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread house to house. So not only is there the Eucharist, but then there's, let's do life together. House to house. It's not just what happens on the Lord's Day. It's what happens on Monday, on Tuesday, on Wednesday, on Thursday, on Friday. Let's do this together. And do that with gladness and generousness. 
Ma, have five extra gallons of ice cream in the fridge. It's the youth group that's coming over. Start thinking when you go shopping. Where are the youth meeting this week? Do they have a place to meet? God's blessed me with this beautiful home. Let me have the kids here. Let me go out and buy a bunch of dryers or a bunch of Rocky Road and or Baskin Robbins or old ice cream. Keto. Baskin Robbins. Hagen Doss. You go broke, but what a way to die. Praising God, that's a life of celebration, and having the goodwill of all the people. Let me tell you a brief story before we break bread and before we pray over your pastor. We pioneered our first church in Raleigh, North Carolina, in a day when Raleigh, North Carolina, the capital city of that state, was the most covertly racist in its practices economically. We were the first church in Raleigh, North Carolina in the late 80s to successfully bridge the gap between black and white. Today, if you go to Raleigh, most of the churches are cross-cultural. But when I went there, they weren't. We built a family. Most of those people are still in touch with my wife and I. We came to Orlando. We built a house. When we relocated, because we had outgrown it, Three-quarters of the congregation said they didn't want to come because it was too far. Had to start all over again. I went through a very dark season for many reasons, three and a half years. But when we began to rebuild, I said, we're not going to build this based on the Orlando mindset that they want a superstar revivalist. Because Orlando's had enough revivalists. What we need is community. And I said, as a house, we're going to begin to let the city know we're here to serve them. We began to do things to serve the city. We have one of the most respected names in our county because we spent 10 years having something called Compassion Week that now it's such a part of the life of the church, we don't need a week to do it. But half our congregation would take a week off and do free labor for the police, for the fire department, for the hospitals, for the educational system. So today, whatever during COVID, during floods, during hurricanes, guess whose church is called on to be a resource center? Church on the Living Edge. We are one of the most respected, not because it's not glory to me, it's God has granted us favor because we have let that city know. Catholic, Protestant, Black, White, Jewish, Muslim, we are here to love you. We are here to love you. We feed over 800 families a week. While there is a professional food bank in the city, our church food bank feeds more than the professional one does. We are the largest local church supplying, and now we give people. We have, we have some of the big companies giving us furniture for people that don't have furniture. We've done makeovers for church for, for people and that don't have it. There are families that are being fed on a regular basis. God's been very gracious to us. But what happened was when we moved to that side of town, 
And we went from a $7,000 a month mortgage to a $70,000 a month mortgage and a $50,000 second mortgage. And I, ha- and I lost almost 2,000 people and had only 400 adults. And we had to trust God. Because the people that were back at the other part were personality-driven because I was on TBN all those years. And they just wanted to show. They didn't want... They wanted what they could get. We had to learn what it was to become a family. Today, I can promise you, we're doing, by the grace of God, very well. This house has a future that's as bright as the promises of God. God's gifted you with a man and woman that love Jesus, love you, love the region you're in, and love the vision of God. But it's going to take all of you to be passionately rushing along in unity. And all I can tell you is it's not a technique. But if you'll rush along in unison, at some point, some way, God's going to give the grace of a mighty rushing. And when He does, you're going to see the fruit of it in how, as human beings, you lay your life down for the city God placed you in. If Boca ever needed something other than celebrity, it needs it Amen? I want you to stand to your feet. I'm going to ask your pastors to come and stand before me. Do we have any oil? I know I kept you long. Forgive me. We're going to break bread in a moment. Stretch out your hands for your man and woman who's getting Father, I thank you that you have called Pastor Carl and Chelsea to a great work. They've been standing on the wall. The Sanballats and the Tobias have wanted them to come down off the wall. But they've been doing a great work. They cannot come down. They may look foolish because they've been crucified in weakness. But you are going to raise them in power. I thank you, Father, that there's going to be a sense of renewal in this house, in this place. I thank you, Lord, that you have set them apart for sacred space and sacred glory. I thank you, Lord, that in this season, you're going to cause them to hear your loving kindness. 
You're going to hear a word behind them. You're going to coach them from behind. Say, this is the way, walk in it, because you're leading them from the future to the future. Father, I'm honored and privileged as a bishop to embrace them in our family of churches. So, Father, I stand before you tonight as your servant, and I ask you that you would cause them to feel safe in the care that you've entrusted to me. And I pray that they would know that safety in ways that will reassure them so that this house can know a sense of we belong. We're not out here on our own. Father, I invoke your blessing that makes rich and adds no sorrow. I thank you, Lord, for the gifts and callings that are in both this man and this woman of God. I thank you for the way you have shaped and groomed and formed them. Call them by your glory and your virtue. And I pray that in this season that the exceeding great promises that are in the sacred text would become existential promises to them and to this house. I pray you would infuse them afresh with that anointing that breaks yokes, that passion, that intention for revival, that it would be rekindled with fresh direction, with fresh awareness, with fresh consciousness, and with fresh perspective. I pray you to make them wise master builders. I pray they would preach not just to those that are present and not just to those that are online, but preach by the Spirit to those that have yet to even show up. That every time they stand behind the sacred decks, they would preach to their future and not just to their present. And that, Father, those that are not even awake right now and might be miles from this building will, by some strange reason, because when the preaching takes place, they will find a need to get here, only to discover they always belong here, because you called them from the future to the future. I pray, Father, that the enlargement that can only come by the Holy Ghost will come in such a way that these two will rejoice in their barrenness, that their barrenness is over. We declare their barrenness is over. And that they shall spread abroad to the right and to the left, and they shall resettle the desolate places, and rebuild the ancient ruins, and repair the breach. And they shall see your goodness in the land of the living. For these are days, says the Spirit of grace, when I will cause you to understand my ways that invite you to indeed with me call those things that are not as though they are. I will give you previews of coming attractions. I will cause you to anticipate by faith the future before it arrives. I will invite you to turn from all of those negative cycles of inefficient thought to the faith that forms, the faith that shapes, the faith that invokes, the faith that e evokes, and the faith that provokes the future into the present. And I will cause you to see with your eyes 
and hear with your ears and know with your heart what has yet to take place in time and space. For I will bring you into a fresh faith, a fresh new way of seeing, for you will walk by the seeing of faith and not the seeing of sight. And this house will know a new dimension of what faith is, what hope is, all undergirded by what genuine love is. For I am doing something new in your midst, and I will not leave it undone. For if I said it, I will do it. And if I spoke it, I will bring it to pass. Father, seal this now, I pray, for Pastor Carl and Rachel and the entire house at Revival Life. I ask it in the name of the Father and the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Ghost. And everybody said. Now before we break bread, I'm going to go to the keyboard for a second. is building his church. Jesus is building his church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail. Jesus is building
just loves me Yes, I know Oh, the Bible tells me so Little one To him belong They are weak But he is strong Yes Jesus loves me these words with me. Christ has died. Christ was buried. Christ has risen. Christ is coming again. Lift the elements before the Lord. Heavenly Father, as we come before you now, we give you thanks because you are the giver of every good and perfect gift. All good things come from your hand, including bread and beverage. What we return to you is an offering we first received as gift. Hands, in turn, took the fruit of the vine and the fruit of the grain and made them into bread and beverage. But we offer it to you now and ask you to bless it. By your words, speak well over this that is the sacrament of grace that was instituted by your Son, Jesus. Lord Jesus, Tonight we remember you. You said, this is my body, and this is my blood. Now, blessed Holy Spirit, Lord and giver of life, overshadow these creaturely elements and make them unto us the real presence of Jesus, that we might feed on him and drink of him and be enlarged as a family. Infuse your grace into these elements that we might participate in the mystery that is the life of Jesus himself. So, beloved, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the loaf and he said, This is my body, broken for you. One loaf, many fragments, one body, many members. Let's eat together. So too, Jesus took the cup after supper. There were four cups 
and the Passover Seder. The third cup was never drunk. It was Elijah's cup. It sat at the seat of the firstborn in the Seder. And at a given point in the supper, the firstborn would go and beckon Elijah to come to the front door. That night, Jesus ended the mystery said, This cup is the covenant in my blood. The renewed covenant for the remission of your sins. And then they sang a hymn and crossed the Kidron Valley. They sang Psalm 118 and went across the Kidron Valley where the fourth cup Jesus drank alone. When he said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But this cup is the renewed covenant in his blood for the remission of our sins. He said, drink it all. Let's drink it all. Take a moment and lift your hands to heaven. Father, we are ever so grateful for the blood and the body of Jesus. I thank you, Father, for Revival Life Church. I thank you for the sacredness of this house and the place and space they occupy. I thank you, Lord, that as they rush along in unison, your Spirit will come like a mighty rushing wind in this season. We declare a day of newness has begun and that opportunities galore will present themselves and possibilities that never seem possible as that negation that would have so defined them has now been turned into a promise. Blessed Holy Spirit, we give you thanks that you bring us into that lively communion with those of us that are present and those of us that are home. Make us one, Lord, in Jesus. For I ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost and all God's people said. Pastor Carl. Come on, keep put your hands together. Just thank Bishop for such an amazing word. Come on, so good. So good. So good. Turn to your neighbor, tell him it's a new season. Come on, tell him it's a new season. It is a new season. Season of the Spirit is upon you. Well, we thank you for joining us today. It's such an honor to have Bishop with us. Thank you for joining us tonight. It's an honor to me that you would come and uh, honor me with your presence today. We love you. Thank you, everybody who has served. Do not forget your children, because uh, there's people back there that want to go home. We love you, and uh, God bless you. I'll see you Sunday morning.